Good morning, church. Guests who are with us this morning, welcome. It's a joy to have you here. So basically, this is covering a condensed version of what we give in a longer multi-hour membership class. Basically, the, the three things we're looking at on week one, two, and three are uh, worship, nurture, and mission. Loving Jesus, growing in Jesus, and making disciples of Jesus. So last week was, was worship. So we talked about gathered worship, what that does, what it's all about, the elements of worship informed by God's word and so forth. And then here, this morning, we're talking about maturity. We're talking about um, following Jesus together, being conformed to the image of Jesus, growing in the knowledge of his word and maturing as disciples. So we're talking about that nurture piece. And then next week, come back and we'll talk about mission, our mission here in the city to shine his lights in our community and around the world. So we'll look at that on week three. Last week, I did go long, and it's just a lot of content to get to, and so th- this morning, I went a little bit long, but we'll get through it. I'm going to try to go a little bit faster, but get your pens out. We've got more notes in the blanks, mainly because this is like a class, right? So we want you to take this home. We want you to, to see what we're about as a church so your eyes are wide open. These are the things that we're aiming at by the grace of God together as the Church of Brook Hills. Ready? All right. Number one, we are one body. We are one body. So the unity of the church is a really big deal in the New Testament. Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he prays that they would be one as I and the Father are one. That is a a huge undertaking, right? But that's what we're called to. Here's what Paul says in in Ephesians chapter two. He writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who made both groups, that's Jews and Gentiles, people who didn't hang out together in the first century, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. And then he goes on to say, in his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body. So you hear that word over and over, one One, one, right? Through the cross, he put the hostility to death. So what's the backstory? There's clearly backstory behind what Paul is saying there in Ephesians chapter two. And the backstory is, again, Jews and Gentiles didn't hang out together. They didn't naturally get along in the first century environment. Their food choices were different. Their entertainment choices were different. Their political leanings were different. Their worldview and religious ritual associations were worlds apart from each other. You almost couldn't find the further edges on the spectrum. And so Paul is announcing that the cross has brought down the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles and brought us all into one family, not two families in the same house, one family in one house called the church. And here's, here's the reason that Paul is urging this upon the church at Ephesus and the other New Testament churches is because it's one thing to announce that the cross destroyed the hostility. It's another for the hostility um, to be destroyed when we show up at church. It's one thing to announce it and proclaim it. It's another thing to see it fleshed out when we have differences, when we have conflict in the church. So what's the goal that Paul is gunning for under divine inspiration for sure in Ephesians 2, 13 to 16? It's this. Paul expects the diverse congregation in the church at Ephesus to not build up by their actions what Christ has torn down by the cross. So he wants them to seek 
unity. He wants them to be reconciled. He doesn't want them leaning into their differences and their conflict. He wants them esteeming others more highly than themselves in Philippians chapter two. Serving others, working, striving for oneness, striving for humility and unity. So what is unity? Here's something it's not. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same, we all have to dress the same, right? We all need the same exact backstory. Um, Paula and I, we met and started dating in college. We weren't at the same college, but we, we were both, it was during our college years that we were dating. And when we were first just kind of getting to know each other, I told her about what I was like in high school. And one of her first comments was, I don't think we would have been friends in high school. Right, because when you went to high school, it might have been like my high school, like you can spot the groups. They all kind of hang together. They, they do dress alike, right? At least the terms that were used when I was in high school were preps and pits. So there were preps, and you could see the preps, like they're, they're penny loafers and all the thing, right? And they rolled up uh, at, the, at the bottom of your jeans. And, and then they had the pits who looked generally angry at everybody. And then you had, you had the jocks with their caps on backwards and all this stuff, right? So you could see the groups, literally the birds of a feather flocked together. Well, that's not what it is in the church. It's not uniformity. It's not like, hey, now you're a part of Brook Hills. Have you gotten the shirt yet? Or have you gotten the hat or the thing we do? Um, It's not uniformity. The unity that's called for in the local church is the unity like, for example, the unity of how your body works. It is is a unified system. It has many parts, but it's it's all in agreement to get you. Like, so if I decide that I want to walk to the back of the room, everything in my body is going to have to agree and move in a common direction and decide which way I'm going, right? So here's what the Apostle Paul says when he's unpacking the metaphor of the body of Christ, is that the one body has many parts, all of which matter. So uh, how many of you have ever helped people move? Okay, groans, I heard that. <laughs> how many of you have helped people move only to discover when you got there that they're upstairs? Okay, yeah, so we, I mean, when we moved here to Birmingham, we had been on, you know, one floor in New Orleans, and then we moved to a a staircase that leads into our front door, and all the people who showed up from Brook Hills who didn't even know us five minutes before they showed up to help us move in, and they showed up and they saw that we had a piano on the truck, which means the piano's got to go up the stairs, right? So here's the thing, when you're moving people upstairs or really anywhere, even though your arms are doing the lifting, what's going to hurt tomorrow? Everything is the, is the answer. I mean, your legs are involved. Your back is involved, right? There's the, the whole body complex is working together to get this thing up the stairs. Come at it another way. If, um, if you, God forbid, I wouldn't wish this on any of you, if you stub your toe in a major way later this afternoon, the rest of the parts of your body don't look at the toe and say, man, it stinks to be you. Like, everything is, is in one accord, right? Your, your hands reach down and grip the broken instrument, right? It, and just kind of hold it gently. Your right foot is taking all the weight. I, hey, I got you for a few minutes, right? We, I'll take all the weight. Your mouth screams out. Your whole body's one system saying, we're hurting right now. Foot's hurting, and we're all in on it together, right? The Bible says that's the local church. Jared was even praying that a moment ago. When one member suffers, the whole body suffers. When one member is honored and rejoices, the whole body, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we weep with those who weep. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 
If one member, he's talking about the members of the body, the parts of the body. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, again, uh, this is, that's New Testament language. That's aspirational. We're aiming at that. We don't always pull it off, right? It's easier said than done. So here's what unity says. Unity says we're different, which is both good and hard, but we're also family. So let's work at this. How many of you have a family or grew up in a family where it seemed like most everything could be hard? You know, like choosing the music on the way to vacation. Why is that so hard? Choosing a restaurant at the end of the Sunday morning worship service. Why is that so hard? Playing a board game. Why do we literally climb all over each other every time we play this board game? Uh, looking at each other sometimes. You ever seen, like, where your kids just look at each other, next thing you know, they're arguing and fighting. It's like, hey, can everybody calm down? <laughs> literally, you just traded glances and there's a war breaking out in our house, right? Faith family gets messy too. Faith family gets real too. Why? Because it has people. Sinful people, right? Um, imperfect people, people with opinions, people with disagreements. Brook Hills was probably perfect at some point, and then we showed up, right? Th these are the realities of what family can be like, and it's no different in the church, in the faith family. So here's the question. Do you love the church when it's unlovely? Jesus did. Romans 5.8, God commended his love toward us in that while we were still Sinners, Christ died for us. At our worst, he loved us. The Apostle John writes these words, Beloved, if God loved us in this way, that's a, that's a huge pivot point, right? You sense what's coming? God's love, so look at God's love. If God has loved us in this way, he says, we also must love one another. And if you ask, well, what's the way in which God has loved his church? Back up one verse, so 1 John 4, verse 10, and it says, he loved us to death. He loved us sacrificially. He loved us selflessly. He loved us when we were broken and sinful. And then he says, if God did that, what else are we gonna do when we look at other people in our faith family, our brothers and sisters in Christ? We need to love one another the way that God has loved us. You, you, know, you read the New Testament letters, and what you get to do, if you will, is eavesdrop on when church got real. Um, Paul and Barnabas had a, the word that Luke uses in describing it is a heated argument. About what? About a missions trip. <laughs> they, they, were, they were going out on a church planting missionary journey and they were trying to decide what do we do with John Mark? He flaked out on us last time we brought him and Paul says, yeah, he'll probably flake out again. We're not bringing him. Barnabas said, give him a second chance. And they literally could not get along. They had to go separate ways. And two of the great leaders of the church couldn't work it out. They had a heated argument about this. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Peter, Paul and Corinth. Maybe Paul was the issue, right? Paul's, he's, it's difficult for people to get along. The weak and the strong in Romans chapter 14. They're like, hey, you can't eat that. It's like, well, yes, we can. We're free in Christ. Well, you can't honor that day. We used to honor it, but we don't anymore. Like, well, you know, there's just all these squabbles in the church, it's not perfect. I, I hope this strikes you as um, hope-giving and realistic. If it's hard, 
your relationships with other people in the local church, if it's hard, you're probably doing something right. And if it's convenient, it's probably because you're in the nosebleed section, you're not on the field, right? Getting all in means it's gonna be hard because you're bumping shoulders and you're trading ideas with people who are very different than you, who get offended by you, and you get offended by them. Now it's time for us to do these one another's that say, forgive one another as God and Christ has also forgiven us. If it's hard, you're probably doing something right. So much more to say there, but there's a lot of that idea in the Bible, so I promise we'll get to it more in coming days uh, as we continue to study God's word. Here's the next point. We display unity by sharing in common a statement of faith. So we have a Brook Hill Statement of Faith. You probably received it on your way in along with your notes. That's Brook Hill Statement of Faith. It is not an infallible document. Only God's word uh, is infallible. But this is not infallible. It's a best effort, right? So, a, a, so the why even have it? A well-written statement of faith summarizes what Christians for centuries have considered to be the clear teaching of God's word. And a well-written statement of faith shows you their work, shows you the homework. It takes you to multiple Bible texts and says, hey, don't, don't take our word for it. Look at these texts in the Bible and you'll see the kinds of things we just described in our statement of faith. So it's a way, it's a way for the church not just to hold hands in love. It's a way for the church to hold hands in the truth and to say to one another, hey, do we believe this? Can we summarize what we believe in one kind of crystallizing statement? Can we hold hands and say, this is true, and we're going to hold on to it together? Without a doctrinal standard, we can drift. You can actually drift even with one, but without a doctrinal standard, you're basically asking for drifting to take place, to drift further and further away from the truth, justifying increasingly problematic positions and convictions. And this is how, frankly, some denominations that used to be faithful ended up shipwrecking the faith, not being or holding on to the true gospel anymore, which is the deepest tragedy imaginable. But a doctrinal standard allows us to say, hey, we agreed on this. This is the clear teaching of God's word. We looked at text after text to see that it's in fact the truth. And so let's hold each other accountable to these truths. Paul calls the church the pillar and the buttress of truth. Well, what if the pillar starts wavering? It can't. It better stand there and it better stand there forever, right? Even, having said that, even our confession of the truth, there's unity amidst diversity. So, so our aim is threefold. And I'm taking this language straight out of the pages of Aurelius Augustine, fourth century theologian, who said this, First part is, is in essentials unity. In essentials unity. So we want to keep the main thing the main thing. We want, uh, we want the gospel to be really clear and for everybody to nod their heads. Do we understand this? This is the gospel. Do we understand this? Are we committed to this? So we want unity in the main things. So for example, what percentage of agreement do we want from every person who would be a member of the Church of Brook Hills what percentage of agreement do we want on the following statements? And I'll just give you a list of them. God is triune, Jesus is Lord, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. The Bible is true, we are saved by grace through faith. What percentage of agreement do we want from all members and would-be members? 100%, (laughs) right? Because these are the main things. These are the things we can't miss. 
They're so clear. We could multiply many, many passages in the Bible and in the New Testament that clearly make this case that these are the true things that Christians have believed. Having said that, and we gather around these crystal clear gospel truths and never let them go. At the same time, beyond that, we also look for good faith agreement in some of the distinctives that inform our practice uniquely as a local church. So what do I mean by that? I'll give you an illustration. Some Christians, um, Christian traditions, baptize infants. Our, our Presbyterian friends, for example, have a, a view that's called covenantal infant baptism where they argue that the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament and you gave circumcision to babies and so you give the new sign of the covenant to babies, right? So they make the argument, they develop in, in various ways. Whoever is wrong on that issue, whether it's Baptist or Presbyterians, can still be a Christian because Jesus is that awesome, right? The gospel is, is bigger than us getting that particular issue wrong. But a church has to have a practice. So if you step into the membership of the church and you say, hey, we just had a baby, two months old, we'd like to baptize the baby. Well, that's not gonna happen because we don't see that in the pages of the New Testament when God's word talks about who to give the, the sign of baptism to. And so that doesn't happen in our church. We have a specific practice that's informed by our read on these things in the Bible. So when you join a church, it's good to agree with something as important as baptism. And why do we say baptism is, uh, makes that list? Well, because every Sunday when we leave here, we recite the Great Commission, Jesus' last words to his disciples. And what does he say? Go and, number one, make disciples of all nations. Number two, baptize them. Well, what does that mean? Well, we're going to have to dig into the text to find out, but it matters. It makes the short list. Making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. None of those are options. So, all right, they're all mandates, and they make the short list of three things. So when we talk about baptism, let's get our eyes down in the text, and let's do the work and say, what do we as a local church doesn't mean we're kicking anybody out of the kingdom for differing on that, but as a local church, do we agree baptism happens to people who have believed and received the word of God, not to infants, right? So in essentials, unity. Second, in non-essentials, liberty. So you're not gonna agree with everything I say on a given Sunday. My wife doesn't agree with everything I say on a given Sunday, right? Guys on our pastoral team, guys on our elder council don't necessarily check every single box that the other people check on uh, finer points of theology. When I was interviewed for senior pastor, this role here at Brook Hills, uh, I found out one particular night when we were having a Q&A session and I was being interviewed that some of the elders in the room differed with me on spiritual gifts, what to do with spiritual gifts, particularly what to think about uh, tongues and prophecy and how that's taught in the New Testament. So only a few months before that interview happened, David Platt, my predecessor and the senior pastor before me, asked me to preach. We were in a series in 1 Corinthians, walking through that book, and he asked me to preach 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which is about tongues and prophecy. Only problem is, when I stood up here to unpack 1 Corinthians chapter 12, David was on a plane going overseas. 
I was like, bro, I need you in the room tonight. Like, I, I need you. We both agree on this particular issue. I need them hearing amen from you on the first row. These Baptists might come at me. I don't know what they're going to say when I unpack the text. I know we agree, but I'm not sure everybody in the room agrees. And are they going to give me grace if they don't agree? Like, can, can I zig and they zag and we still be all right in this area? Seriously, uh, I would say in my own personal testimony, every local church I've ever been a part of from childhood when my dad pastored a church in New Orleans until today, I have learned from not just leaders, I've learned from my brothers and sisters who are part in my small group, who are in my life, in our lives, Learn, and I'm not just talking about learning like the, the experiential things, of the wisdom areas, but I mean learning scripture, being sharpened in God's word. So can we be humble toward one another? Can we be open? Can we say, I'll listen to that. I wanna learn. I mean, we don't, I don't have to die on every hill. We don't, have to argue. we don't have to leave small group because we disagree on what to do with the book of Revelation or what to do with the book of Song of Solomon or what to do with head coverings or what to do with like all manner of things that we could disagree about, but that doesn't mean we have to leave. That doesn't mean, hey, I'm gonna take my ball and go home now because we don't agree about the thing, you know? So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And then third, Augustine finishes the swing with in all things, charity. It's possible to have robust convictions and not be a jerk, right? It's possible to be both. We don't have to be theological curmudgeons. Just because we care about the Bible doesn't mean we have to mean, be mean about it. We don't have to be curmudgeons, right? Let's not blast people out of the kingdom when Christ is happy holding on to them, even with their errors and ours. And we'll sort that out when we get home. We'll figure out. We see through a glass darkly, man, I was wrong on that one. And I sure got in a lot of people's face about it, but I ended up, turns out I was wrong on that one. Okay, we're one body, second, we're becoming holy. So we're talking about these two marks of the church, oneness and holiness. We are becoming holy. Holiness is both a gift and a process. So if I asked you the question, are Christians holy already or are Christians being made holy? The answer is what? Yes, <laughs> it's both. We are declared righteous. That, that's a, there's a big theological word for that called justification. And we are being made righteous. What's the big theological term for that? Sanctification. Both are true. Justified. Holy and blameless in his sight. In Christ. And yet continually being changed. Being transformed. Being made more and more like him. So Paul, he tells the Corinthian believers, he says, listen, sin used to be your identity, but you were washed. He uses definitive past tense language. It happened, it's done. The washing has taken place. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified. So in that sense, Paul is saying, you're already clean. Jesus used that same language in, in, the, uh, in his final discourse, the Mount of Olives. But the same Bible that says you were cleansed also says, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and the spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So wait, but I thought we were already cleansed. Why are we cleansing ourselves? Well, because justification leads to sanctification. 
the ones whom he has declared righteous, now he is making them righteous, little by little, day by day, through the work of his Holy Spirit. The same New Testament that tells Christians you are holy commands you to be holy and to strive for holiness, Hebrews 12, 14, without which no one will see the Lord. So the church is, to, is called to become in practice what we already are by grace. That's a mouthful, but think about it. The church is called to become in practice what we already are by grace. And here's how you see that kind of gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives. Here's what we are by the work of God in and on our lives. And here's what we're becoming by the work of the Spirit daily. So you are one. That's a gospel indicative, Ephesians 4.4. So what do we do? Pursue unity. You are one. Be one. You are holy, 1 Corinthians 6, so be holy. Pursue holiness. You've been delivered from darkness, so, Ephesians 5, walk in the light. You don't belong to the darkness anymore. You belong to the light, so walk in the light. It is what you are. Be what you are. You've been set free from sin, Romans chapter 6, so don't let sin enslave you. Don't let it master you. Don't let it control you. As John Newton famously said, he's the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, and he famously said, I am not what I hope to be. I am not what I certainly shall be in the future, but I'm not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So there's that, I I have a new identity. I am a new creation, but I got a long way to go. Right, justification, sanctification. Paul puts it this way, God has begun a work, but he's not finished yet. He will continue his work and he will bring it to completion, but it's not finished yet. So I love this picture. Um, I think that's a pretty awesome picture. And in this, sort of that lioness in this analogy, just go with me here for a second. That lioness is the Holy Spirit. And the lion cub is you. All right, so look how cute you are. Uh, Right, but look, to a nearby hyena, you look like a snack. Right? And you're not formidable yet. And there's a sense in which that's the kind of thing that we see when we get into the New Testament letters is Paul says to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, I want to give you solid food, but you can't handle it yet because that's you. You're, you're a lion cub and you're amazingly cute, but there's a long way to go before you're formidable enough to handle solid food. Right? So that's what maturity is, growing in Christ, feeding on his word, growing in the knowledge and grace of God. We're children of God, but we need to grow. So holiness is both a gift and a process. Next point is holiness is a community project. So the New Testament verbs which call us to pursue godliness call us to pursue godliness together. It's not me flying solo. It's me not flying solo. It is is me with you, us together pursuing growth in Christ Jesus. Here's what The Apostle Peter says, as obedient children, so he's talking to a group of people, do not be conformed to the desires of, plural word, y'all's former ignorance. But as the one who called y'all is holy, y'all also be holy in all y'all conduct, right? That's that's 1 Peter, that's what it's getting at, right? It's gonna take y'all doing this together, corporately, collectively, in solidarity, in community. What's that look like? A couple of things. We spot evidences of grace and encourage one another toward godliness. So we say, I I see growth in you. I know you've been discouraged by some setbacks in your life, but I'm just telling you, I'm watching you grow. 
Hebrews 10 says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So there's this stirring activity. There's this provoking one another to godliness. It's not live and let die. It's, hey, let's grow together. Hey, don't fall back. Don't fall behind. We're all moving forward. Life is only forward. It's not back there. So let's go and let's go together. Let Let me just quickly add that we don't pursue this in a spirit of legalism where I'm um, policing everybody's growth and expecting immediate change, where I'm holding a timer over your head and saying, man, we've talked about that for two weeks now in small group and it's still an issue? No, there's, there's patience. The Apostle Paul, when he tells his story in 1 Timothy chapter one, he says, I'll tell you my story. God has been extraordinarily patient with me. So there should be extraordinary patience in the church, right? Usually, um, Sometimes there can be demands in the church for everybody to change. Usually the person who demands immediate change in others is often defensive when corrected. That's just an irony that often happens. So that's why I love how when the Apostle Paul writes letters to churches that are sinning in all kinds of various ways and are messy in all kinds of various ways, and yet they still say, grace to you. Hey, I love you, church. I love you, saints in Christ Jesus in Corinth. Saints in Corinth, have you looked at what's going on? It is the Jerry Springer show out here in Corinth. And yet he calls him, he leads with saints, holy ones. We point to evidences of God's grace. Next, when we stray towards sin, we call each other to return. Again, that's this, it's not live and let die. It's, hey, let's all, let's all stay alive. Let's walk with Jesus. That's where our, our flourishing is out here in the realm of obedience to him in keeping with his purpose and calling. So here's how James says it. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That's, that's church. That's church life. It's, we see this person running off toward the edge of a cliff and do we just say, oh man, I wish he knew there was a cliff. It's like, hey, there's a cliff. Don't go off the cliff. Don't stand on the edge of the cliff. You might fall over, right? And then you're running out towards him. You say, hey, let's, let's come back to faith in Jesus. Come back to following him. And this really brings up the often uncomfortable topic of church discipline. So church discipline is a sobering term. It basically means correcting sin. And, and doing so in, in the context of grace, in the context of love, and in the context of church community. So the word discipline, don't get thrown off by that. Discipline is not a bad word in the Bible. Um, the, the Bible says that God disciplines those he loves. Which means if we walk with God, there are gonna be moments where God says things that are uncomfortable where God looks at something in my life and he says, Matt, you need to turn around. My, my followers, my children, don't walk toward those things and yet there you go, walking after those things. Turn back in my direction. There's blessing and obedience. Come back to that place, right? The Christian posture isn't to resist every voice that tells me I'm wrong. Nothing makes me more hardened against transformation than being unteachable. And so in the life of the church, we're called to humble ourselves, hear God's word from one another, 
Let ourselves be encouraged and let ourselves from time to time, when the time is right, be admonished by people who love us. Now, there's a tension here, obviously, because in the church, there should be a lot of grace toward broken and sinful people. God has been patient with us. Why would we not be patient with other people? So there should be a lot of grace toward people who are stumbling. But in the church, having said that, that's fully true, in the church, there shouldn't be an attitude of carelessness in areas where our lives don't reflect God's character. Because that's what we're called to. We're called to become godly, God-like, Christ-like. That's, that's what it means to shine. Let your light so shine before men. They may see your good works. Good works isn't a bad word in every place. It depends on what you're talking about in the Bible. Good works are not necessarily a bad thing. God wants to bring about good works. Ephesians chapter two, eight and nine talks about God's grace and, and faith and receiving a gift, but then it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if our lives don't reflect the character of God, we have a problem and we need to be told we have a problem. Think about that in a couple of categories. A loveless church doesn't reflect God's character in the world. What does a loveless church do? Loveless Christians lie about God's love. We're not reflecting his character, we're lying about his love. Unholy Christians, untrustworthy Christians lie about God's faithfulness. Sometimes, this is the tragedy, sometimes professing Christians, sometimes church leaders become billboards that contradict the gospel and just sit there on the highway in Birmingham telling everybody who's driving by, don't believe this. The gospel doesn't change anybody. Look at these billboards that contradict the message that Jesus changes us. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter five, Paul brings this very issue up. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles. That's Paul saying, you're literally out Corinthing Corinth. Corinth is, is learning stuff about how to break the rules by watching you Christians. A man, he says, is sleeping with his father's wife. And what's your response? He says, and you're arrogant. People came to church on that Sunday and word was getting around and y'all were slapping high fives. And he says, he says this, shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? So there, there is excommunication. There is this, this brokenness and sorrow because somebody will not let go of sin and it's dragging Christ's name through the mud in the church and outside the church. And Paul says, remove him from membership, why? Why remove them from membership? Because Christians don't act like this and Corinth needs to know it. And you know who else needs to know it? The guy in 1 Corinthians chapter five. Christians don't act like this and you need to know it. He refuses to repent. Understand, and this, again, this is not a really popular topic, but if we wanna be faithful to the New Testament, this is what we're into. Um, the church doesn't decide what's right and wrong with our finger in the wind of the culture. Hey, which way is the wind blowing in the culture? No, God defines the terms of obedience, full stop. He defines the terms of obedience and his church doesn't treat his word dismissively, ever. We reverence his word. We submit to his authority. You keep reading 1 Corinthians and uh, there are lots of problems in this church, right? There are people who are 
comparing each other to one another and saying, I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul and I'm of Cephas. There's tribalism and fights going on and there's people showing up and they're getting drunk on the communion wine before everybody's even showed up for church. Right? There's all kinds of issues and yet not everybody's being removed. This person's being removed in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So then that begs the question, which sins call for church discipline? And I mean that final stage of being removed from the membership of the church. Which sins call for it? A few categories to offer you. Number one, outward. So these are not kind of sins of the heart where I'm sort of trying to peer beneath the outer edge and saying you are unapproachable, you are proud, and therefore you're being kicked out of the church. It's like, uh, we could differ over that, uh, you know? Um, outward sins, you could see them, you can hear them. Second, significant sins. So significant that you look at the person who's engaged in that in an ongoing way and you say, I can't continue to affirm your profession of faith if you keep holding on to that. Third, unrepentant. And that's the you keep holding on to it. You won't let it go. When we've addressed it, you double down and defend it and say, I don't intend to change. That's the unrepentant part, right? So those categories are there to, to make church um, church discipline something that is careful, something that, um, that is tempered, that is chastened by biblical wisdom and biblical categories. Now, those categories are also meant, I think, to help us avoid legalism. You know, the wrong-headed notion that Christians don't struggle, Christians don't fall into sin, Christians do struggle, Christians do fall into sin, and Christians help each other to get back up when we've fallen. There's patience. There's patience. E even in the act of removing this person from membership in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, when you remove this person because they don't intend to change and they continue to go after these things, he says, when you remove them, do it with tears in your eyes. When you remove them, do it praying they'll be restored like the prodigal who goes off into a far country and then he comes to his senses and he comes running back home. Pray he comes running back home. Pray she comes running back home. And then if you see them at a distance, go running toward them, Galatians chapter six. Restore them with gentleness. Say, we waited for this day. Welcome home. No holding it over their heads. Any of us can be deceived. Any of us. Church discipline isn't about shaming. It's compassionate admonition. So I want to say one more thing. There are going to be clear cases where to not remove someone from membership at Brook Hills fails that person by leaving them confused about what a Christian is. That's why church discipline exists. But I've said this many times and I'll say it again, is I pray we'll be a church that's really patient with struggling Christians. Really prayerful skilled at restoring prodigals. All right, so what are the aims of church membership? We've, uh, we've taken some of our kids' friends to South Louisiana to stay at my wife's parents' house because they, they love having company over and it's out there in the middle of the sugarcane fields of South Louisiana and we just have a blast to go out on the boat and do all the things. So we brought some of our kids' friends to South Louisiana and you know they've embraced the family when they know how to open the crawfish you know they've embraced the family when they stop calling them Mr. Pete and Miss Kathy and they start calling them Nina and Papa, right? You know that they've embraced the family and they've stepped into the vibe when they know where to find the forks and knives, they know where the coffee mugs are, they know, right? Um, 
And, and that usually happens like day two or day three. They know where the stuff is. And not only that, they start putting their own dishes in the dishwasher, right? It's like, you're not a guest anymore. You belong here, right? You know where all our stuff is and you're living together with us. And the interesting thing is sometimes we've brought the same group back with another one or another two. And you can see the group that's been there telling the new one where the forks and knives are and where the coffee mugs are and how to open the crawfish, right? Joining a church should be something like that. Joining a church turns you from a guest to a host. Where you, you all in means you step all the way inside and you're inviting others. You step all the way inside and you're putting the plates away after you've eaten. You step all the way inside, you drop the formalities and you embrace people like family. That's, that's what we do in the life of the church. So what's going on at the Church of Brook Hills? Here's a couple of aspirational statements that I hope are increasingly true. Believers are learning God's word and loving one another. That's what I hope is happening. Every day, every week, every Sunday, and in between the Sundays, that people are learning God's word, people are growing in Christ, people are helping other people grow in Christ and mature. We're learning how to walk with people who are having a hard time. Our marriages are getting stronger by the grace of God. Believers are being equipped for ministry and for mission. Kids and students are imbibing the truth of God's word, learning it for themselves and learning how to apply it. People with addictions, people with trauma are finding hope. They're not just finding hope in concepts, they're finding friends. People who will come alongside them and walk with them in the difficulties and trust God for small victories today. Bigger victories tomorrow, bigger victories the next day. The believers next are serving in ministry and becoming more like Jesus. So here's the thing. Christianity is boring if you watch it play out from the cheap seats. The magic happens on the field. That's where it, it comes alive. And that's membership. Membership, the reason we're calling this series All In is membership is you jump inside you take the family name, right? You find a towel in a bowl and you go to work. You start serving. You sign up for preschool ministry. Like literally we need people to sign up for preschool ministry. <laughs> like that's on my list, all right? Sign up for preschool. You, you serve adoptive and foster families. You show up for small group and you're eager to be real with people. You're eager to give hope to people and encouragement to people. And here's, here's the cool thing is you're gonna do this among people who naturally you might not have befriended in high school. You might not have even befriended late in life, but you turn around and you look across the room and there they are and they're family. They're your brothers and sisters and we either grow with them or we don't grow. So we grow together. 